Hi, I'm Maria Ramper, and welcome to this episode of Engineering Reimagined. Take a look around your home or workplace. How many smart devices make your life and work more efficient? There's smart washers that can text you when the laundry is complete, fridges that keep a tally of expiry dates, virtual meeting facilities that seamlessly connect you to peers around the world, and voice-activated technology to help you communicate and interact with your environment more effectively. Each of these have been designed to create the smart, accessible and inclusive homes, workplaces and lifestyle facilities we take for granted today. But all these advancements in technology use a lot of energy and don't necessarily consider our overall health and well-being. So concurrently, we need to be designing homes, workplaces and public buildings that reduce our carbon footprint and are healthier and more supportive of the end user experience. How can we re-engineer buildings to create not just smarter, but more sustainable, energy efficient and comfortable structures that are also resilient to the impacts of climate change? One answer is Passive House, a voluntary standard for design and construction that provides a template for ultra-low energy buildings that support high levels of occupant comfort, energy efficiency and resilience to future climate change impacts. In this episode of Engineering Reimagined, Oricon's Associate, Sustainability and Integrated Design and Certified Passive House Designer, Pablo Sepulveda, speaks to architect and founder of the North American Passive House Network, Bromon Barry, about how and why she is a champion of Passive House, the impact it's having on global design, and the challenges it faces in becoming an industry standard around the world. Hi, Rowan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there. Looking forward to being on the Oricon podcast. Yeah, it's very exciting to have you here. I mean, the last time we see each other face-to-face was 2019. It was in a metro in Beijing. It was the Passive House Conference. And always looking, what are you doing and how you are being a champion in Passive House and advocating for it. Thank you, Pablo. And... The Aussies and the Kiwis are really championing Passive House in a way that's uh, super exciting for me to watch. You are an architect by profession, like me. Um, So what inspired you to specialize in sustainability and high-performance building design? Really, you know, I started many years ago. I came here to California to do my architecture training and right from the get-go, was really looking for how do we do buildings that are much more healthy and supportive for human occupation. And that was the time when, you know, green building was really just sort of emerging as a concept. As an architect, we don't really have an equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors have, but we do have a standard of care And that always really struck me, like, how can I, as an architect responsible for designing buildings that people are going to supposedly live in for and occupy for 50 to 100 years and hopefully even longer? And, you know, that's really where my journey first started towards trying to define what is a green building, what's a sustainable building. And, you know, in the early days, that really was very nebulous. Nobody really had a a real defined idea of what that meant, and it's still evolving in many ways, right? Yeah, that's Um, that's that's right. 
So for yep. all this certification you have in the US LEED and here in Australia, Green Star and I don't know, international ones that are like Wello. So what is Passive House and how does it compare to all these certification? People get a little bit overwhelmed with all these labels. Each of these frameworks has attempted to answer that question and provide a guide and a framework for how to build a green building. What drew me to Passive House particularly was it wasn't a checklist, but it had these three things. It had clear targets. It had tools that allowed you to determine whether you met the targets. And it has training. So a support-like framework for how to teach architects like me who really weren't trained in energy modeling or any of this analysis for like, defining outcomes for buildings. As I started to practice and look for outcomes that I could reliably lean on to ensure that everything that I designed actually worked well, was comfortable, and performed well for the occupants. I was missing the tools, I was missing the targets, and I was definitely missing the training. And that's, that's really what, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what Passive yeah. House provided. And it was in this Green Remodelers Guild community that I had helped start here in the Bay Area that a guy showed up, he'd married an Austrian woman, gone and lived in Austria for a while, learned about Passive House himself, and he and his wife had came back to California, and they renovated a house here in Berkeley, and they used this thing called Passive House and told us the story about what it is. It was such a light bulb moment because it really was all the things I had been looking for. It had a reliable outcomes process that every building I designed from then on, if I use this methodology, I use the tool, aim for the targets, I pretty much can guarantee that it was going to perform and be comfortable. And that to me is the magic yeah. of Passive House. <laughs> it's no surprises. All the feedback you have from clients afterwards, you know that will be positive. And you exactly. are actually looking forward to hear them because you know what will happen. Everyone that have done the Passive House training to be a certified Passive House designer is a highlight in their careers. Engineers are like, oh, now I see things differently. Yeah. I see things more holistically. And architects struggle with numbers and calculation. They say, like, oh my God, it was so tough. But now I have a power to know what I'm doing and what is the consequences of my design. So it's very empowering for engineers and architects. Can you tell us about the five Passive House principle and how they work together? Because that's an important point to people to understand. It's a very simple recipe, five real basics, starting with super insulation. And usually that's just a little bit better than what your baseline code requires. Better windows. So sometimes double or most often triple, but depending on your climate, yeah, but just right. better windows than baseline code. And then it's heat recovery or energy recovery ventilation. So really guaranteeing that you're getting actual fresh air and not just random air from, you know, random places. 
then it's no thermal bridges, just making sure that you haven't punctured holes in your beautiful insulation that transfer the heat in or out of your building. The last thing is air tightness, which, by the way, I'm starting to translate as smoke tightness for our California and um, I bet you Australian context because we share very unfortunate uh, frequency of wildfires. It's making that air tightness requirement very relevant in a very different way. This is something I've found all those passive house principles are becoming more and more relevant and critical as we face pretty severe climate change impacts. And they're upon us already. They're not a future scenario. Passive house started like a very neat thing. Now, if you see what is going on today in terms of climate change, energy cost, and passive house can answer those questions in a very scientific way, up to 90% of less energy for heating and cooling, if you compare it with the national code. Why do you think that passive houses haven't been commonplace by now? I've asked myself that question for many years, and I started going down the policy rabbit hole and really kind of digging into why isn't passive house just everywhere. And the more I engaged in policy and trying to insert passive house into the conventional code structures, the more I found that they totally don't connect. When we analyzed how code structures work, they're a linear incrementalist process and they're built that way. If we try and plug in air tightness into baseline code, but we cannot simultaneously guarantee that a heat recovery or energy recovery ventilation system will also be required, we're potentially creating a building science disaster. Yeah, because they work together. So you cannot pick and choose and say, like, we are going to do this and not going to do that. Exactly. Passive house is the circular structure. It's all connected. You change one thing, it affects every other thing. You can't do passive house as a piecemeal a la carte menu. It's something that is a prefix. It's a full menu integrated and it's all connected. And so why passive house isn't sort of more ubiquitous is we live still in a linear incrementalist policy world. Our policy doesn't have really great mechanisms to integrate holistic circular building design approaches. And just until recently, I really struggled with how do we reconcile these two completely conflicting structures? And we come to this new realization that they don't have to be integrated, but the holistic integrated process like Passive House can actually accelerate the linear incrementalist baseline code structures by working in parallel 
And so this sort of parallel pathway is now in the policy world being adopted really well in some jurisdictions. And they're seeing that much more passive house buildings are being built. I'm following what is going on in New Zealand. They are going to incrementally change the building code. Every five years, there will be an upgrade of that. And they are aiming to basically ask an equivalent of a passive house by 2035. It will be very interesting to see how that develops, how the industry adapts. I mean, there have to be a lot of changes, but they are doing it in that incremental way. That's what's worked so well in Vancouver and in British Columbia. They did the same thing with their BC step code, where they said, we know you're not there yet, but this is where we're going. And the end goal is equivalent to Passive House. Passive House was originated in, in Europe. And the first project that uh, I was working on here in Australia was a Passive House <laughs> building. And the first reaction of the people is like, why you are doing Passive House in Australia? It's not the climate for that. Can you bust this myth? that passive house is only for <laughs> cold climates. Absolutely. And I, I sympathize because I've had exactly the same challenge here in California. Everybody had exactly the same response. Well, passive house is only for cold climates. And after almost 15 years now working here in California, designing only passive house, all the data is showing very clearly that actually it works fantastically in our Mediterranean climate. And in fact, it's working much better than all the baseline code stuff. And I can very comfortably say it absolutely works in warm climates. <laughs> what do you think it requires to make Passive Power more acceptable for developers, owners, designers, and builders? So the only barrier I found to Passive House is actually education and mindset of people because we are now also starting to integrate embodied carbon analysis with our operational carbon analysis. The Passive House Network has worked with the AECB, our UK colleagues, and we commissioned them to make an adaptation of the pH ribbon yes. um, embodied carbon calculator plugin. And I've been doing this on a couple of my projects. So we can do operational and embodied carbon calculation in the same tool. And what I'm finding is actually our passive house projects are not higher embodied carbon than baseline code. And in fact, it's really just a function of what materials you pick. And the increased insulation is a total red herring because what we have found in these analysis, once you really do the math, actually the size of your PV array can completely shift your embodied carbon footprint and can be much higher embodied carbon than any of your insulation or even your glazing increase. Right. So to the extent that your passive house envelope can decrease the generation requirement, the demand 
of on-site energy, you can massively offset your embodied carbon footprint by just needing a smaller PV array. So can you tell us a little bit uh, about some examples you have seen around the world? I was in Vienna when they gave the certification for the first, the the Ravensbank building. It was a retrofit of an old building with a new building in between. It was the first passive house. It was a tall building and it was an all glass office tower. And uh, that was fascinating because it's not a house. I also and it's a retrofit, to... which is very difficult. I mean, oh, working I mean, with the constraint uh, of uh, existing building is way more difficult to do. So well, it's very impressive. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about that particular building, it was built as to it was the OPEC oil building in Vienna. <laughs> yeah that was revamped and rebuilt as a passive house by this bank. And so it was a beautiful transformation, both physically and metaphorically, from old tech, oil-based fossil fuel system to the new way of building that just really, you know, super hopeful and representative of of exactly what we need to be doing with, with how we address our built environment another building i went to you may have gone to too in china at the expo it was essentially a passive house museum yes and the whole building was filled with different exhibits of the passive house principles and the museum had these fabulous displays that you know illustrated or demonstrated what those were and you could play around with them and they were interactive and it was also just a beautiful building that was another yeah, that's one. a fun building it was quite yeah. impressive to see what what they are doing in china can you tell us a little bit what what is like to live or work in a passive house building so i have to true confessions i still do not live in a passive house building myself which you know i I hope to remedy that like pretty soon, <laughs> but <laughs> from all the client feedback that I get from projects I have designed, what people over and over tell me is everything just is super quiet and peaceful. And it's something that they come to realize when they leave their houses that every other building compared to theirs is just noisy. It's something that we in the passive house community don't necessarily talk about and promote. We talk about health, comfort, but we don't talk about quiet. And it's like this hidden superpower. <laughs> yeah, and it have like a very big impact in your mental health. On one of our passive house network conferences, we did a tour of buildings in New York City. And one of the projects we went to in Brooklyn It was on a noisy street. There's always sirens in New York. But as soon as the group got into the house, um, the tour guide shut the door and he said, just stop for a minute and listen. And it was quiet. And it was exactly that peace of mind where you suddenly like could just relax mentally because there was none of this crazy outside noise that we just 
assume and it becomes so ubiquitous and we just literally tune it out. But when we don't have to tune it out, it's this amazing magic space and it's a gift that we really need need to give ourselves more often i would like to talk a little bit about the future the emerging technologies that can change the way we design construct and maintain our buildings to create a more sustainable future our industry is becoming a lot better at integrating multiple analyses of what we do to buildings. The innovation in passive house has really been in not so much the tech gizmos in the building, but in the holistic technical analysis of the building design. Learning what matters in this analysis and how to apply that into buildings. We've got BIM modeling. We can now export a lot of the information in that into our energy model. Oricon are doing an incredible job of being able to synthesize all of these different modeling tools to create better outcomes. That's a huge innovation. We're integrating cross-laminated timber. We're integrating prefab panelization into our building methodologies. That's the tech that I'm the most excited about, is this ability to properly analyze and predict outcomes and to synthesize both the, the design with the construction and the modeling. I saw that you represent the Passive House Network at COP27. What we should, as an architecture, engineering, construction industry, focus in the next decade of climate action? The thing we should really be focusing on right now is peak heating and peak cooling. Those are the numbers that matter. Everything else seems to be just a side outcome. I look at people and they, you know, they're aiming at net zero, but it doesn't focus on the peaks. And unless you drive those down, those are what are going to enable a renewable energy system to function and to be viable. So as architects and designers, those are the numbers that seem to matter. It makes a renewable grid actually sustainable. And that's really where we have to get to. But what I see over and over again that also will change all our materials embodied carbon numbers will change depending on where those materials are manufactured and how they are manufactured so being very careful about what products we specify now because those embodied carbon numbers are fixed to our current emissions data and ironically, one of the last thing I'll add to this is, and this is something I learned from Diana Ogavorzatz, who's the was the lead author for the, the building section of yeah, the IPCC, IPCC reports. One of the things they saw in the analysis of carbon emissions is sometimes doing nothing specifically for retrofits is pro- is potentially the better thing to do than to do 
an incremental retrofit that locks in the emissions for a building that won't allow a much deeper, more effective retrofit at a later date. I have seen that trend in Europe in terms of uh, retrofit. Um, I, I know some architects that, as a statement, they said that they are refusing to do new buildings altogether. It is just interesting to see how that's shifting very quickly and as a way of combating climate change. I would be hesitant to make that kind of statement because if yeah, you're only doing that in incremental retrofit, you're possibly doing actually a worse job than not doing it or leaving it till later when these smarter systems, better products, higher efficiencies you can get from a retrofit at a later date. That's when the data and calculation and those tools can tell you because just basing your statement in something that you believe is very different than to calculate and then say like, no, this is it. Absolutely. That's one thing that in all this that I've learned is you have to park your assumptions at and the, do the homework uh, back <laughs> the of the room. Exactly. Because guaranteed, many of those things that you sort of intuitively think should be how it is when you do the calculations, you're like, oh, oh, no. The actual data can often tell you quite a different story. And that's been a real revelation. Yeah, and especially and always- when. When you think about that, you have all these planets and you have all these different industries that have different embodied carbon levels. And if you don't do the local math, you, you are going to be just assuming things that could be true for other regions, but not for, for your own one. So that's very important. I think sustainability is a very contextual. That's a great way to put it, Pablo. Boring, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking with you and having your insight. So thank you for joining us in this Auricon podcast. Thank you, Pablo. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to watching and seeing more fantastic projects that you've been working on. So thanks again for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Engineering Reimagined. As this concept continues to spread around the globe, can you imagine the positive impact on climate change if all buildings adopted the Passive House Standard? If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe on Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify. And don't forget to follow Oricon on your favourite social media platform to stay up to date and join the conversation. Until next time, thanks for listening.